we are picking up where we left off two weeks ago in the middle of the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. It's a very well-known and important chapter in this Gospel. We looked two weeks ago at our Lord Jesus Christ going through Samaria and stopping to have a conversation with an unnamed woman at a well. And so we pick up our text this morning in verse 16 of chapter 4. And we will read through verse 26. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go! Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Dear Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word. That in your word we would see all of the glories of our Savior. That in your word we would see the duties that you have given to us. And that in your word, we would understand the splendor of worship. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. You may not have thought about it when you first woke up this morning and got in your car to come here to church. But worship is the most important thing that a Christian can do. It's what humanity was made for. It's why we have been redeemed to worship. We worship and we glorify God because He alone is worthy of worship. It's what believers will do for all eternity in the presence of God. And as a result, we must understand what worship is 
and what God expects of us in worship. In this passage, which is one of the longest and most direct discussions by Jesus about worship, we see God's heart for worship. It's significant. This passage is significant because of what Jesus says, because of to whom he says it, and because of what it means for us. And so from our text this morning, I would like us to see three things about worship. First, that worship must be in spirit. Second, that worship must be in truth. And then third, and most crucially, worship must be in Christ. In spirit, in truth, and in Christ. Well, as we come to our text, this is the, begin, the middle excuse me, of a long discussion that Jesus has with this woman at the well. It's a discussion that we're going to look at in three parts. The first part we looked at two weeks ago. We looked at water and how Jesus told this woman of her need and the provision for eternal life that he can give. The living water that never dries up. Next week, we're going to look at witness, another W, as this woman goes out throughout all of the town and tells others what she has seen and heard from Jesus. This week is about worship. And Jesus talks about the importance and the nature of worshiping God. Now, the interesting thing right at the beginning is, this woman is not the kind of person that we would have expected this discussion to occur with. We might think that, for example, Nicodemus would have been a better discussion partner with Jesus about worship and about the theology about worship. After all, this woman is not a religious leader. She's not a theologian. She's not even a man. She's a woman and a Samaritan woman at that, at the well. But remember what we saw before, that Jesus, it is said, must go through Samaria. Jesus had to have this conversation because everything that Jesus does is intentional. Nothing is by chance. Everything is with a purpose. And all that is recorded about our Lord Jesus Christ is recorded for our benefit as well. So we pick up the story here where we left this woman. She wanted Jesus to give her this living water. She wanted it so that her need would be met. She didn't want to be thirsty anymore. She did not want to come in the middle of the day by herself, ostracized to have to draw water from this well. And so Jesus starts with a very simple statement in verse 16. Go, call your husband. And come here. Now, of course, no statement is simple with Jesus. He knows everything about her already. This statement on its face seems simple that she would get her husband, and so that Jesus could begin to talk to him as well about the living water. He would have need of it as well. Plus, that would give him an opportunity to speak to this woman in the presence of her husband. We've seen this over and over again what Jesus does. 
He knows people. And so when he speaks to them, we have to understand that he's God and knows all about them. Jesus knew Nathanael when he was sitting under the tree. Jesus, we are told, knew what was in man, and that's why he didn't commit himself to any man. Jesus knew Nicodemus, which is why he, he knew Nicodemus better than Nicodemus knew himself, which is why Jesus spoke to him about being born again. And here, Jesus knows this woman. And so she answers, an answer that is technically true at the beginning of verse 17. I have no husband. Now, this is a technically correct answer that is hiding a lot more. She answers in this way, it seems to me, because she wants to end this part of the conversation. She doesn't want Jesus to get a bit more personal with her. She's got something that she's trying to hide. She doesn't want to have this discussion. And so she says something that's technically true to put a stop to it. You've probably seen this in your home. Usually it happens when there are two siblings. And one of the siblings says to the other one, Stop touching me! Stop touching me! And the other sibling will technically say, I'm not touching you now. I may have been touching you the last 10 minutes, but right now, I'm not touching you. It's technically correct. That's what she's doing here. So the interesting thing is, Jesus acknowledges her statement is true, but he then testifies what he knows about her and about her sin. He says, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the man that you are with now is not your husband. So what you have said is true. Now, can you imagine her reaction to this? Her jaw is going to hit the floor. Jesus didn't just guess at who she was. He didn't just say, I think you've had several bad relationships. He didn't just say, I perceive that you're a woman who is immoral. He didn't make any generalities. He said exactly what was true of her to let her know that he knew everything about her. How would she react? How does he know this? And, and who is he? What kind of a man knows this level of detail about me? Now, we have to understand, Jesus does not say this to shame her. He's not saying this to speak down to her or to ridicule her. He's saying this to her to show her that nothing in her life is hidden from him. Now, what does that mean? She and we should listen to Jesus because he is God. He already knows everything about you. Jesus can't be fooled. He can't be tricked. There's no corner of your life that you can cordon off from Jesus. He knows every one of your deepest and darkest sins. And yet Jesus still reaches out to her, just like he reaches out to you and me, even though we're sinners. Well, the next thing that we see is this woman gets a bit uncomfortable. In verse 19, we see perhaps the greatest understatement in all of the Bible. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, the only thing that could make this, I think, uh, more obvious is if 
a light bulb went off over her head when she said that. Yeah, I think, do you think Jesus is a prophet here? He told her exactly how many husbands she have and exactly what she's doing right now. And of course, Jesus is so much more than a prophet, she doesn't know the half of it. It's almost humorous what she's saying. But then, there's something that goes on here after this in verse 20. She shifts a little bit. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, I think she is nervous here. And I think this is a changing of the subject to avoid Jesus probing a bit more about her life. We, we do this all the time, don't we? We try to change subjects to get someone off a track of questioning, to get them away from where they're probing, where we don't want them to go. And that clearly seems to be what she's doing. But I also think there is an aspect of sincerity in her question. It's not just a trick. Because you see, she perceives he's a prophet. And so what do you do if you are sitting with a prophet? Well, if you were me, you'd come up with the best and hardest theological question you could come up with, and you'd ask him. Answer this for me. So in our day and age, you might say, Sir, tell me how election and human responsibility go together. Tell me how sanctification is a monergistic work of the Holy Spirit, and yet we are to do and to act. How does that work? You'd come up with the question that was in your mind over and over again, rattling around. And for this woman, as for probably almost all Samaritans, this was the question. Where do you worship? Because you see, the Samaritans worshipped here on that mountain, Mount Gerizim. And the Jews worshipped on Mount Zion in Jerusalem in the temple. We can't forget this Samaritan-Jew context. There is literally a mountain between this woman and Jesus. She wants to know the answer. Who's right? So Jesus begins to answer his question. And the way he answers it is very interesting in verse 21. He starts by telling her that the time is coming when the answer will be neither. Look with me at verse 21. Woman... Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For the salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus here is addressing her. Don't make the mistake of hearing him looking down on her. When he says woman, it's the same phrase he uses with his mother earlier in the gospel. We might better even translate this ma'am. It's not an honorific but it's also not familiar. It's just an address. He says, ma'am, the day is coming, the hour is coming, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that it doesn't matter where you worship. Go wherever you want. No, we'll talk more about that later. But I think sometimes people take this text and they run with it. And they say, look, Jesus says, it doesn't matter where you worship. I don't need to come to church to worship. I can worship on the golf course. I can worship at the football game. I can worship at the soccer field where my children are playing. And I just, I wonder, does all of section 201 at the Texans game break out in a psalm at one point? Does this happen? I don't think so. 
Are you somehow having corporate prayer on the links? You see, we take what Jesus says and we move it to a place he never intended it to be. He's talking about something different. What he's giving us is God's standard for worship. Look at verse 23. Again, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is the one seeking worshipers. Now, if you are a student of the modern evangelical American scene, this seems very unusual. Because we're used to talking about seekers in terms of unbelievers who happen to wander in the church building. And we want to have worship be a certain way. We want to have a certain type of worship so that seekers, those who come in, will find God and will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So our worship needs to appeal, not just to people, but to unbelieving people. But the interesting thing here is, Jesus says there is a seeker of worship. But it's God. He's the one seeking worshipers. Man is not the measurer of worship. When we fail in that fashion, that's why we want to be seeker-sensitive to other people. Jesus is telling us God is the one who is seeking. And that should immediately put us in a posture of listening. We need to do what God wants. Because he's the one seeking. We must worship this way. And there's not an option among several choices. God is the one who directs us how to worship because he is the one who seeks worshipers and he is the one to be worshipped. Now, you'll see this here. Jesus says, they must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's a very strong word. This is actually the fourth must in this, par in this book. Just as serious as Jesus was when he said, you must be born again. Or when the gospel tells us that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Or that John the Baptist tells us that I must decrease and he must increase. That is how we must worship. It's not one among many options. So what does worshiping in spirit mean? Well, the first thing that we should notice is it doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit. And you will see in your translation that the word spirit is not capitalized. That's intentional. That's because in the original language, there is no definite article here before the word spirit. It's not referring to the Holy Spirit. But it's also related to the fact that God is spirit. So we are to worship in spirit because God is not limited by a body. He's not limited by a physical location. You see, she started talking about geography in verse 20. Is it this mountain or is it this other mountain? Tell me the answer. Jesus says, that's not the place to start. God's not bound by that. The place to start is that we are to worship God in spirit. And this, I think, refers to the human spirit. We might call it the heart. It is the way that we relate to God. What Jesus is saying here is that worship must have more than outward actions, more than physicality, more than geography. Worship is the place 
where man meets with God. And so in worship, we are to respond to God. He is the one who is seeking. And our response is to be one from the heart. It's to be real. It's to be sincere. We are not just to go through the motions. Now, some of you need to hear this today. You may be going through the motions in worship. You may be thinking that you have to meet obligations to come to worship. But the Father doesn't want your duty and your obligation. He wants you. He wants your heart. But at the same time, don't think that the Spirit is equal to emotion. Jesus is not telling you what to do with your arms or your hands or how you're supposed to feel in worship. To worship in spirit means to have a meaningful connection, a relationship to God. We see that in what Jesus says. Notice in our passage here that not once, not twice, but three times Jesus refers to God as the Father. Now, that would have blown this woman away. Could you imagine God a holy God being called Father by this immoral Samaritan woman? You see, Jesus is highlighting that worship is a relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. We don't just worship God, we worship the Father. We worship our Father. And this is because it is the Father who is seeking worshipers who will come to Him as a father. To worship in spirit means to know that you have been reconciled to God, that you have a real relationship with Him. Do you worship in spirit? Does worship thrill you? Do you want to connect with the Father? Does worship reveal to you who you really are and what you were made for? Jesus is telling you that it should. You must worship in spirit. But there's another part to Jesus' well-known statement. It's important that we realize that Jesus said two things, not just one. He said we are not just to worship in spirit, but also in truth. And this gets back to this woman's original question. You remember what it was. The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshipped on Mount Zion. Now why is this? Remember that the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. The Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And in the Pentateuch, as the Israelites were getting ready to come into the Promised Land, they stopped near two mountains. And God told Moses to have six of the tribes go up onto one mountain and to shout out to the other six tribes on another mountain all of the blessings of the covenant. And the, tr the first six tribes were on Mount Gerizim and they shouted the blessings of the covenant. And the second set of six tribes were on Mount Ebal and they were to shout out the curses for breaking the covenant. 
The idea here was so that Israel would know that they were covenanted with God and that God had promised them blessings and threatened cursings under the covenant. The Samaritans didn't have God's word to David. They didn't have the prophets or the historical writings. So everything in our Old Testament that you and I and that the Jews of this day had that said that God was to be worshipped in Jerusalem, in the temple, all of the, the details about the temple, the Samaritans didn't have. And so what they did was, they used their best instinct and their best thoughts, and they decided that God would be best worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And it makes some sense if all you have are the first five books of the Bible, because near the place where this temple was built is the city of Shechem. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it should. Because that was the first place that Abraham stopped and built an altar when he entered the promised land. And so, from their perspective, this is where Abraham started worship. This is where the Israelites started worship before they entered the promised land. And they continued to worship here at Mount Gerizim after the Jews destroyed their temple in 128 B.C. And so she asks, which is right? And does it even matter where we worship? Now this is where I think we can mess up. Because we can read verse 21 and take from it that there is no rightness to worship. We do understand that Jesus tells us to worship with the heart. With sincerity. In a relationship and with meaning. And so sometimes our reaction is, we don't want to get caught up in being right about worship. Let's not worry about being right. Let's just be sincere. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Jesus' words are always perfect. Could you imagine that if you came to me as your pastor and you said, Pastor, I have an important question here. This is the way I think about this. And there are other people that think about this in this other way. What do you think? And if I said, you know what? You're dead wrong. I think for many of you, you couldn't find the door fast enough. But that's not what happens here. Jesus does tell her, you are wrong. You don't know. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. But she doesn't disengage. She doesn't get offended. Because Jesus knows who she is. He knows what she needs. And there are many occasions in which what people need is a good, strong dose of the truth. And so she bring, he brings it to her. Now how do the Jews know and the Samaritans don't? Well, I think the answer is obvious. We've just talked about it. The Jews knew because they had God's word. Because God had told them to build the temple in Jerusalem. He had told them that his name would be placed in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Over and over again, we see this in the scriptures. We see it in 2 Samuel. We see it in 1 and 2 Kings. We see it throughout the prophets. They knew because they had God's word. And the Samaritans didn't know because they didn't have God's word. God gave his word to his people to guide them into how to approach him in worship. You see, 
What this means for us is that sincerity is not enough. In fact, the idea of sincerity can lull us into thinking that we set the standard. And as long as we sincerely meet our own standard, everything will be fine and we are good with God. But there are all sorts of false religions that are sincere. The Mormons are sincere. How many of you dress up in a shirt and tie and walk in 90 degree Houston heat and go knocking on door to door to tell other people about your religion? I'll wait. Muslims are sincere. How many of you would travel halfway across the world to go to a city that is crowded because your religion tells you you are to go there and offer prayers in that place? They're sincere. Hindus are sincere. If you've ever been to India, you will see that there are entire cities of India that are a mess and are run over because animals, especially cattle, have the way of everything because according to their religion, they sincerely believe that cattle and these animals are divine. Sincerity is not the test. Even the Samaritans were sincere. You have to be pretty sincere to build a temple on top of a mountain which is what they did. Sincerity is necessary. Jesus said worship in spirit. But it's not sufficient. It's not enough. That's why he says you must worship in spirit and in truth. You have to have both. Jesus does not pit the two of them against each other. Now, you may have unconsciously done that. You may have said to yourself, well, I just want to feel worship. As long as I'm moved in worship, that's enough. I don't need to think a lot about worship. Or alternatively, you may say, I want to make sure I'm doing everything exactly the right way and exactly the right time. And if I'm kind of sitting like a bump on a log when I'm doing it, that's okay. I need to tell you something. Stop it. That's not what we do. Jesus says we are to worship in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean to us to worship in truth? It means we need God's truth in order to worship him properly. We dare not make up our own inventions. We dare not look to our own preferences. Remember that God is the one seeking worshipers. And he does that on his terms. More than that, worship is more than something that we do. Again, I think we could be confused by that. We come to church on a Sunday morning and we find that that's one of the things we have to do on Sunday. That there are other things to be done. We need to make a meal, we need to eat, we need to rest, we need to travel, we need to do other things. It's, one, it's an important thing we have to do, but it's one of the things we have to do. No. Worship shapes who we are. Worship is our chief end. Because worship is what we were made for. It's important that we get it right. And that we look to the Lord for his truth. Why would God give us instructions about so many other things in life? And then leave worship to us. It just makes no sense. 
And the Bible is full of examples of those who brought worship to God according to their own thoughts and wisdom. We can go all the way back to Genesis, to Genesis 4. You remember that Cain and Abel each brought a sacrifice to God. And the Bible tells us that Abel's sacrifice God had regard to and accepted, but Cain's sacrifice he did not. Have you ever wondered why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? Well, one of the things is they were different sacrifices. Abel brought animal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice from the herd. Cain brought a grain sacrifice, a non-bloody sacrifice. And so maybe you just thought Cain got unlucky. That if he would have put his hands on something else, God would have accepted his sacrifice. Except for in Hebrews chapter 11, we are told that it is by faith that Abel made a good sacrifice to God. Now let's look at that a little more closely. Where does faith come from? Paul tells us in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the Word of God. So it seems clear to me that God had told both Cain and Abel what type of worship he wanted, what kind of sacrifice he wanted, and Cain's response was, that's too hard for me right now. I'm sure this will be good enough. Or, I like this better. And Abel said, I will do what my God commands. Another example we have is in Leviticus 10. In Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron. They were high priests. Not the high priests, but they were high priests. And they brought a sacrifice to the altar. And we don't know exactly how they changed God's command, but God tells us that they brought strange fire, which I did not command them. They sacrificed in a way that I didn't command them. And they were consumed with fire. Now, can you imagine that? They were sincere. They were professionals. They were seeking to serve God. But because they didn't serve God in the way that God had commanded they were consumed. Perhaps the best example is in Exodus 32 of the golden calf. Israel makes a golden calf. Moses goes up on the mountain to speak to God. The Israelites get worried. And they don't know if Moses is ever coming back. And they don't know where this God is because they can't see him. But they remember that all of the other peoples have gods that they can see. And so what they do is they ask Aaron to make them a visible representation of God. This is very clear. Not once, not twice, but three times in the Bible we are told that the statement is, this is the God that brought you up out of Egypt. And so they're making an image of God because they're afraid and they want God with them. And Moses comes down and he speaks to Aaron. And in one of the most ridiculous statements in all of the Bible, Aaron says... I don't know what happened. They gave me gold. I put it in the fire and this golden calf popped out. What? Because Moses had said, who told you to do this? We worship God as he tells us. God's given us explicit instructions. You see, we are to worship in truth in accordance with God's word because there are lots of wrong ways to worship. Every experimental and novel way of worshiping is wrong. Now that doesn't mean 
that worship needs to look exactly the same in every single context. God tells us we are to sing. He doesn't tell us exactly which songs or what meter to sing in or what instruments to accompany us or none at all. He tells us to pray. He doesn't tell us whether we should pray two or three prayers, whether they should be longer or shorter. He tells us to read the Word. He doesn't tell us which book of the Bible we have to read every time. He tells us to preach the Word. He doesn't say the preacher needs to be exactly 19 minutes. I'm glad. He doesn't say that the preacher needs to preach consecutively through books. But he does say you need to preach the Word. And so this kind of worship, if I can put it this way, works in Katy and in Indonesia and in Nigeria, and in Somalia, and all over the world. Because we're worshiping according to God's commands, God's preferences, not our own. If worship is to teach us who God is, how could we think of worshiping Him other than the way that He tells us in His Word? How could we have an accurate description of who God is and His acts if we are the ones inventing worship. But that also means that our worship, in order to worship in truth, must be saturated with Scripture. My good friend Ligon Duncan puts it this way. He says, we are to read the Bible, we are to preach the Bible, we are to pray the Bible, and we are to sing the Bible. The Bible needs to be a part of all of our worship. It needs to saturate all that we do in worship. And all that we do needs to be guided by the Bible. And the truth goes hand in hand with the Spirit. <coughs> God wants your heart. And He gets to your heart through your mind. The Bible is very clear about that. Do you remember Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And how do we bring that spiritual worship? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is through the renewal of our mind that God grabs our hearts. Jesus puts it this way in John 8, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Do you want to be free in worship? Then you need to know the truth. The truth will set you free. Now there is good news here. Because to worship rightly means that we need to be in God's word. It's not a mystery. You don't have to wonder what kind of worship God wants. To know the truth of God is to draw near to God and to hear Him in His Word. You must worship in truth. But there's a third thing that Jesus tells us. Worship can only be in spirit and in truth if it is in Christ. We cannot have a relationship with the Father to worship in spirit apart from the Son. And we can't know the truth of the Father unless the Son reveals it to us. You see, the Father wants and seeks these worshipers. Jesus says that true, that is real, 
genuine worshipers will come to the Father. And he says here, the hour is coming and is now here, in verse 23. Now what does he mean by that? It's a little bit different than what he says in verse 21. The hour is coming. He is letting this woman know that there will come a time when geography does not matter. Why? Because the place of worship will not matter. Because there will be no more earthly temple. Jesus is the temple. It's not that worship will be temple-less. It's that it will be everywhere because of Jesus. The hour is now here, he tells her. And I like to think in my sanctified imagination that when he's saying that, Jesus is pointing to himself. Because throughout the Gospel of John, whenever it is referred to as the hour of Jesus, or Jesus' hour, it means the death and resurrection of Christ. It's the coming of Jesus that changes everything. Jesus is saying, now that he's come, things will never be the same. He is the fulfillment of everything that God's word has pointed to. He is the one who makes the relationship. He is the one who brings the truth. Do you see how blessed you are? You are the beneficiary of Jesus' finished work. That means you can worship the Father. Your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the reason that we worship. And that is because Jesus is not only the one who ushers in a new reality. He is also our redeemer and our mediator. Do you see the connection that she makes in verse 25? I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now she gets part of what the Samaritans were waiting for. The Samaritans were waiting for the Messiah, but they didn't call him the Messiah. They called him the Tahib. That is the revealer. The one that would bring truth. The one that would have all of the answers. And so she looks at Jesus and she says... I know that one is coming that's going to reveal all and answer all these questions. And I think what's actually hidden here is she's saying under her breath, are you the one? I think you may be the one. You told me things about myself that I never told anyone else. And Jesus answers her so simply, so directly. I who speak to you am he. And actually... The English translation hides a bit from the Greek. What Jesus says to her, and you may even recognize this phrase, he says to her, Ego eimi. I. I am. I am that I am. Does that sound familiar? We're going to see it over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, I am, same phrase, the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Same phrase. Before Abraham was, I am. Same phrase. He's echoing what God said to Moses when Moses said, Tell me, whom should I say to the Israelites has sent me? And God said, I am has sent you. The self-existent one. And so, this is something that we see Jesus is the one who makes all of this possible. 
Without Jesus, we cannot worship. We don't even want to worship. We can't even see God apart from Christ. But with Jesus, whose once and for all sacrifice has made a way for sinners to come to God, sinners become worshipers. Praise God. The Bible wants to turn us away from our own thoughts to God's thoughts. The Bible doesn't care what kind of God you are seeking to worship. It declares to you who the God of the universe is and commands you to worship Him. The Bible doesn't care how you think worship should be done. It declares how God desires to be worshipped. The Bible doesn't care how you think you can work your way to God. It declares that only by believing in Jesus Christ, His death for your sin and His resurrection for your righteousness, can you approach God and be reconciled to Him. You were made for worship. God is seeking you today to worship Him. He sent His Son to make you a worshiper. Believe on Jesus and worship the Lord. Let's pray.